Please open your Bibles to James chapter 2. Andrew, I don't know when last you were here, but I think I started chapter 2, right? <laughs> yeah. I'm finishing uh, the section verse 8 through to verse 13, um, but I'm going to do it slightly different this morning. Last week uh, we started looking at verse 9, and uh, the goal is to to do a synopsis of 10 through to 13, since they all deal with the same thing. But then I'm going to pause right in the middle and do a little bit of a section on the law of Moses and the law of Christ, and uh, I hope to be able to, to fit that in. Um, so please be patient. This is going to be different to the normal uh, expository preaching where we focus uh, primarily on one verse. I'm going to go outside that round this morning and try to uh, do two sermons in, in one. What I'm going to look at this morning is the law, our liberty, and the sin of discrimination. The discussion on the law, just like the kingdom, is one of those subjects that can be confusing. Often, when we say the word law, we generally think of the law of Moses or just the Ten Commandments. That's normally what is in our minds when we hear the word law. However, the Bible uses the word law in a variety of different ways. For instance, the law is written upon our hearts, that is the Gentiles. But that's not the law of Moses. That is different. While it is not authoritative, the law written on our hearts, it does give us an idea in our conscience of what is morally right or wrong. Everybody born, is non-Jew, born knows what is right from wrong. You know what murder is, even though you have not been explained what murder is in terms of the law. Furthermore, the law of Moses is very specific in nature as it relates to the people of Israel. For instance, God says in Leviticus 26, 46, these are the statutes and the ordinances and laws which the Lord established between himself and the sons of Israel through Moses at Mount Sinai. Clearly, a relational aspect that relates to the law. This is confirmed by Paul in Romans 9 verse 4 when he says, who are the Israels to whom, Israelites to whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. Clearly, the law, including all the other things, was given to the Israelites. It was for them. We might not think much of it, but the law is not given to us as Gentiles. Now, there may be Jews here, so it may be given to you as a, as a Jew. But to us, the law was not given. And this causes a bit of a conflict because there are those on the one side that say, we should not use the law in evangelism for Gentiles. And there are others who say, well, just because it was given to the Jews doesn't mean it does not apply to us. It's two different discussions. I know it shocks some of you, but... This is absolutely clear. The law is given to the Jews. But that doesn't mean that we who are not Jews do not live by any law. By no means. I will look at this 
later. The moral requirements precedes the law. Murder was murder before murder was stated as murder in Exodus chapter 19 and 20. However, many Christians claim to say that if we claim or say that we are no longer under the law, the law of Moses, we espouse antinomianism. Antinomianism just basically means to live without the law or more literally to live against the law. By implication, we then are saying that Christians, due to their liberty, advocate sinful hedonism and the pursuit of sinful habits, making admissible, making these admissible for all saints, meaning, meaning that you are free to live like you want. By no means am I saying that. I'm stating a fact that is clearly found in Scripture, that the law is given to the Jews. But it doesn't mean that it has no moral bearing on everyone else. Now, how should we understand the law? And why am I starting with the discussion on the law? Well, because our understanding of the law and how it relates to the believer will ultimately affect how we live in the world. James raises this point in verse 12 of chapter 2. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. But, on the other hand, Paul says, if you want to live by the law, therefore under the law, you have no part in Christ. So, which is it? Are we to live by the law because we will not be judged by the law, or are we under the law and just live freely in Christ? That's the complication of the law. What are some important factors in understanding the relationship between the law and the New Testament believer? Can we use the law in a non-Jewish evangelistic uh, setting? I will answer that at the end of the sermon. So hang in there. The subject of the relevancy of the law has been around since the inception of the church. Remember by Acts chapter 15 at the Jerusalem Council, what was the discussion? Should the Gentiles keep the law? Galatians, the entire book, speaks about the application of the law for Gentiles. It it has been a problem, so I am no voice on authority on this, but I do think there are clear principles in Scripture that will help us align how we live in accordance with uh, what the Scripture teaches on the law. Now, last week we saw the unity of the law in verse 9 and 10. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable of all of it. And if you remember, if you were here last week, that speaks of the unification, the unitary aspect of the law. The, in the mind of the Jews and in the mind of Jesus and James, as he writes here, there is no threefold tripartite um, nature of the law. There is no moral, there is no civil, and there is no ceremonial. It is one thing. Again, I say it is helpful to understand it in that way, but when they speak of the law, it's always as a unified whole. So the point that I made last week is that the the unified law is broken if you show 
discrimination if you uh, commit this sin of partiality. Today I want to show you another truth that James reveals about the law and the seriousness of discrimination in that the law finds its origin in a singular God, in God. Look at verse 11 and following. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Why is the origin of the law important for this context? Is this merely a, a statement of effect to tell us that these two are important commandments in the moral law? Understand what J, uh, um, understanding what James is saying here will help us understand the weight of the law and therefore how we need to live. James wants his readers to understand that every word and every command given by God is essential and important and must be obeyed. In verse 11, James tells us why believers must avoid the sin of discrimination. Firstly, because the entire law condemns you. Secondly, because the law was given by a single author. Now pay close attention to the wording in verse 11. I'm going to cut out the qualifiers and give you the main substance. For he who said, also said, That's the main idea. For he who said, also said. He wants them to hang on to the words of God. So he doesn't have to quote the entire law. He only has to mention one or two and he does that. Stress is placed on the spoken words of God. There are many ways in the New Testament that quotations are introduced. For it, is written, for it is written, for the law said, or as according to Moses, or as according to scripture, or Moses says. All of these are legitimate ways to quote a verse from the Old Testament. I should say a passage. But this is not just a quotation. It's more than that. These two commandments, yes, are given for emphasis, but also to highlight the weight that they have because of where it comes from. Now the two commandments that is given here in verse 11, do not commit adultery and do not murder, do not follow the order as it is found in the Hebrew text. And some say, well there you go, it's two different Bibles. Uh, James is not quoting the Old Testament, so clearly there's a problem here, it's not in the same order. You know what he's quoting? the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this is the order. But it is interesting that even in the translation, James says, he who says. Why does he do that? Because he understands the weight of God's voice in the pages of Scripture, even in translations. Make sense? Even though they are uh, quoting from a translation, it carries the same weight as the original manuscript as it was given to Moses as he wrote it down, obviously. Needless to say, this tells us that 
the New Testament authors had a high view of the words of God in the pages of scriptures in the, of scripture even in translations which means you can trust what you have because God speaks in it now why are these two commandments do not commit adultery and do not murder both relate to social interaction would you agree right Committing adultery, social interaction. Murder, clearly social interaction. One ends a social interaction. But both in the Old Testament would result in stoning, interestingly. Both Jesus uses on many occasions to illustrate the failure of the Jews. Now they are not the greatest offenses. So the point is not so much these two offenses, but the equal weight that both of them have because of where it comes from. They both have equal weight because of its source. Again, let's read it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not uh, commit murder, do not murder. So if you keep uh, the, the command to not commit adultery, but you commit murder, guess what? You've broken both. It's, it's equal. It's not the fact that you may have not physically committed adultery. It's equal in the eyes of God because you've broken his command. You've broken his law. And that's the weight that James places on these commands. He says it doesn't matter because that's the argument that he makes. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. You are the same. Whether you commit adultery or whether you commit murder, it doesn't matter. Breaking one, you stand guilty because of all of them or um, for all of them. The same God who says do not murder also requires that you remain faithful to your spouse. What is the point? They're both authoritative. They both require a response. It comes from the mouth of God, and so therefore it is authoritative. Both come from a single author. James highlights here the origin of the law, not so much the requirement of the law. He's not talking specifically about not committing adultery and not committing a murder as showing the weight of these two in relation to where it comes from. Therefore, God requires... That the entire law, doesn't matter what it is, must be kept equally. That's the point. Since he gave all of them, all of them must be kept equally because all of them are important. Remember this. What is in view here is the authority of the law since it is found on the lips of God. I will get back to that. The authority of the law on the lips of God. The second question that we have to answer is, what is the relevance of these two commands? What is the, what is the contextual relevance? So, what is the context of chapter 2, verse 1 through to verse 13? You should know it by now. It is discrimination, thank you for whispering that, or favoritism. That is the context. In comparison to murder and adultery, where does discrimination fall in? 
Seems like a small sin, right? I said to you last week that the Jews had a scale. The most important ones and then the not so most important ones. James eradicates that. He blows that out of the water. Here's what he's doing. He's saying, just because you don't commit adultery and don't commit murder, you're equally accountable to the judgment and the condemnation of the law if you commit the sin of discrimination. How do I know that? Because he hints at that. Look at the end of verse 9. If you show partiality, you're committing sin. That's the offense. And you are convicted by the law as what? Transgressors. That's the judgment. That is the result of disobeying the command to love your neighbor as yourself in the context of Leviticus chapter 19. Now look at the end of verse 11. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a what? Transgressor of the law. Do you see those two things? Transgressor of the law, if you commit the sin of what? Favoritism. Transgressor of the law, if you break any of the other law. What is he saying? They're both equal. Doesn't matter which one you break, you are still a transgressor of the law. You know what that means, right? If you were here last week, you, you would remember uh, Kenan. That's all you have to remember. Kenan is the illustration of a transgressor. This is somebody that's got no regard. Not, not, he's not like this. I'm just. <laughs> this is somebody who has got no regard for a state law. They look at it and they're like, huh. Yeah, I'll just walk right over it. And let me turn back to try to erase it, spit on it, and, and then have no regard for the consequences of the law. That is a transgressor. transgressor. He's a violator of God's holy and high standard. James says, guess what? These three, if you are trying to weigh what is most important, are putting these three on an equal balance. Doesn't matter which one you break, you are still counted as a violator. It's wider than that. It's not just these three. It's every law of God. If you break it, you are counted as a violator. This is the seriousness of discrimination. James chooses these two commands to show a clear disregard for human life. Both, commit adultery, uh, commit murder, show a disregard for human life. This is what selfishness looks like. This is what self-centered love looks like. Now James says, add this to the list. Discrimination. You see the weight of this sin? You see the seriousness of this sin? You have violated the high standard of God. Why? Because it comes from a single author. Showing discrimination in offense is no different to murder. I'm not saying it's equal to. It's no different in weight to murder. Why? Because God's judgment equally rests, doesn't matter which law you break, it equally rests on any offense. So if you break quote-unquote, the small sin of discrimination, the entire weight and judgment and condemnation of the whole law rests upon you. That is the seriousness of this sin. The whole law is an interdependent whole. 
that is the point that he's making. One law, one God who gives it. All of it is therefore important. So in effect, James is saying, if you're not under the royal law, the kingly law in verse 8, then you're obligated to keep the entire law all day, every day, without fail, perfectly. Does that make the point? That is the stress that he's making. If you're not keeping the kingly law, the royal law, then guess what? The requirement of the law of Moses still rests upon you. Now, obviously, contextually, he's speaking to Jews who are receiving this letter since they are meeting in a synagogue. So he can make that argument pretty seamlessly to them. But if they keep the royal law, they fulfill the law. James puts favoritism on the same scale as murder on and adultery. He places them on a threefold featherlight balance showing that the slightest transgression of one is a full transgression of all of them. You are just as guilty whether it's murder, adultery, or favoritism. The weight and the condemnation of the law rests upon you. This raises a question for commentators. What exactly is James talking about? Since he's writing to believers, why does he place them under the weight and condemnation of the law? Violators, condemned by the law. Well, James is saying in verse 8, for the sake of argument, if you are truly fulfilling the royal law. If this is true of you, then you are doing well. But if that is not true of you, what is the implication? The entire weight of the law rests on you. What this shows, again, is that God has a high and holy standard that is required in the law. It's not just about keeping one or a few of the Ten Commandments. It's keeping all of them, all the time, perfectly. So James writes with that in the background. What this raises then in the discussion of the law is that the law in and of itself, the law of Moses, shows no tolerance regardless of how sincere the offerer is. doesn't matter if you want to keep the law. That doesn't matter. doesn't matter if you are attempting to keep it perfectly all day, every day. If you fail at one, you failed at them all. The law shows no tolerance. This law shows no grace. The law in and of itself self-condemns the sinner. But what does John say? Law through Moses. But, what does it say? What's the rest part of the sentence? Grace and truth through Jesus Christ. Law through Moses, grace and truth through Jesus Christ. This opens the discussion on the law. So I'm going to pause here for a moment. I want to consider the law of Moses and compare it to the law of Christ. I'll be here for a short while, which may take the entire sermon. 
There are at least three theological principles that we need to understand as it relates to the law of Moses and the law of Christ. So let me briefly give them to you and I will try to return to our passage and bring it all together. Number one, the first theological point that we have to understand is the fulfillment of the law. So we're going to leave James and go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 5. Depending on what your theological conviction is, there's different ways in how people understand the law and the prophets fulfill and abolish. I'm going to read it in its most natural way in which it is found in the text. Verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish, literally destroy the law or the prophets. Pretty clear, right? I didn't come to remove it from you. I didn't come to take it away from you. I have not come to abolish, destroy them, but to what? Fulfill them. That's a clear statement. I've not come to destroy it, but to fulfill them. For truly I say unto you, until Heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or dot, not the smallest mark in Hebrew or, or, or the least mark in Hebrew will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Pause there. What is the goal? Why is Jesus saying this? Because they thought, well, when the king comes, we're going to be delivered because there's going to be a new law. We will no longer be under the law, right? So he says, no, I didn't come to destroy it. I came to fulfill it. Now there's a question here that is raised about law and prophets. What on earth does it mean? Is that the entire Old Testament? And that is often the view. I'm going to limit it to the prophecies concerning the messianic hope of Jesus Christ. That is what is in view. How do we know that? Turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke 24, Jesus confirms what he means in Matthew 5, 44, uh, 24 verse 44. And he said to them, these are the two disciples who have now um, left uh, uh, Jerusalem and they are sad because of the Messiah's death. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Doesn't that sound familiar? It sounds very similar to Matthew 5, 17. But take note how Jesus defines what is being fulfilled. That everything written about me. So all the prophecies concerning me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So this is not all the prophecies as a, as a total whole, but specific prophecies that speaks, to about, speaks about his Messiahship. So Jesus is saying all that the, the scriptures, I should say, the law, the prophets and the, the Psalms, prophesied about my death and resurrection that has been fulfilled. The same word fulfilled here 
is similar to the word used in Matthew. So Christ is saying that everything as it relates to him has been, by this time, has been fulfilled. So a lot of commentators say, well, there you go. All the Old Testament prophecies have been fulfilled. But is that what Jesus is saying? He's not saying that. He said, all the prophecies concerning me, which implies that there are still prophecies in the Old Testament that must be fulfilled. See how important hermeneutics is? See how important it is to understand little words like me in the Bible? Because clearly Jesus limits what the prophecies were. It does not say that every verse in the Old Testament speaks about Jesus Christ because this verse is used to say that. A lot of people say, well, Jesus is is, is everywhere in the Old Testament. He's everywhere. Uh, Yes and no. He's not in every word or in every line, but as a whole, what does the Old Testament do? Points to Christ. But not every verse points to Christ. And yet, everybody, not everybody, yet there are people who say, well, no, you can go from David and Goliath to Jesus Christ. There you go. Jesus is the victor, just like David was. Yes, Jesus is the victor, but that's not the point of David and Goliath. Now, hopefully we understand that, that every prophecy concerning the Messiah, specifically related to the death of the Messiahship of Jesus Christ has been fulfilled. When was it fulfilled? Go to John 19. John 19, look at verse 28. Concerning the excruciating death and crucifixion of our Lord and Savior. After this, Jesus, take note of these words, knowing that all, that all was now accomplished, finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. They put it on a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop, on a hyssop branch, and held it out to his mouth. And when Jesus received the sour wine, he said, it is what? Finished. Know what that is? Same word in the beginning of verse 28. And Jesus knowing that all now, uh, all was now accomplished. He says, it is accomplished. He bowed his head and gave up his spirit and died. So what has been accomplished? Again, theological books will tell you the salvation and redemption of sinners. Yes, that is true. But it is more than that. The righteous demand of God is met by Jesus on the cross. All that God required in the giving of the law, the the perfect law, that's what Paul calls it, the holy law. All that God requires for a person to be right with him, the perfect keeping of all the law is kept 
by Jesus Christ and accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross for his people. Turn to Hebrews. Let me just say while you're going there. Matthew, I believe, maybe chapter 27, says, at this moment, at this moment, as he cries out, it is finished. What happens in the temple? The curtain is rent in two. What do you think that means? The wall of separation between God and man has now been removed. Why? Because the righteous requirement, the high and holy standard, has been attained. It's accomplished. It's fulfilled. And that's why Jesus Christ, it is finished. It's not just salvation, but also satisfaction that is in view. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. What does this relate to? The ongoing requirement of the law in order for you to to keep your relationship with God, there must be an ongoing sacrifice. Verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. What does that mean? One sacrifice in contrast to the ongoing sacrifices of the priests. What does that look back to? To the moment of his death on the cross. Interestingly, it says here, he sat down at the right hand of God. God. He sat down possessing the highest rank in all creation. This is not the, 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 the throne from which you will reign in, in Jerusalem, which is still future in the millennial kingdom. This is ranking. He now possesses the highest position in all of creation. When Jesus dies, he fulfills all that the law and the prophets have prophesied about. But note the quote in verse 16. The Holy Spirit, verse 15, bears witness to us for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write uh, write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. Amen. What the author of Hebrews understands, what James understands, what Paul understands, is that the moment Jesus says it is accomplished, all the God required of mankind to be in a right relationship with him, the Messiah accomplished. It's fulfilled. So clearly not all the law is fulfilled because there are still prophecies that must be fulfilled. For instance, kingdom. For instance, the land promises. All those still remain unfulfilled. There's parts of the um, Abrahamic covenant that still looks forward to a future fulfillment. But it is the messianic promises or prophecies that relates to the death of Jesus Christ that has been accomplished. The sacrifice for human sin that has been accomplished. 
The finished work is both the prophecies concerning Christ on the cross and the redemption that he will procure for his people permanently in his blood. So, in the cry, it is finished. It is not just a cry of death. It is a cry of satisfaction. God is pleased with the sacrifice. Jesus declares in that cry that all that the Lord requires, all that the prophecies, um, prophets spoke about concerning him, he fulfilled and accomplished. All that the Father willed, he achieved. Why did the Son have to die? Well, because of what should take place to you and me. We should have received that punishment. We deserve eternal punishment and death. The law reveals this about us. Unworthy, unholy, unable, incapable. But I wanted to keep the un. Unworthy, unholy, unable. But when Jesus cried, it is finished. It, it was not merely crying out that he was dying, but because he accomplished the desire of the Father, and he adequately, completely fulfilled the requirement of the law on our behalf because he alone is the worthy one, the holy one, and the abled one. Therefore, it is finished is a cry of satisfaction. Secondly, it's not only is the law fulfilled concerning the Messiah, but secondly, Jesus is a greater prophet than Moses. The second element I want you to see concerning the, the, the contrast between the law of Moses and the law of Christ is that Jesus is presented as one who is greater than the prophet Moses. Back to Matthew chapter 5. Those who did Old Testament survey may remember, since you did Old Testament 1 recently, may remember the similarity, but I will help those who don't remember reading this in the Old Testament. Seeing the crowds, verse 1, he went up. Think about that. He went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, or literally spoke with them. The weight and significance of this passage can only be fully understood as it is compared or contrasted to its historical parallel. Now let's think about this. Who in the Old Testament went up on a mountain and spoke to God's people. Who was it? Jesus? No, man. Moses. Thank you. I don't know who said Jesus. We'll pray for you. <laughs> Moses. What happened in, I think it's, yeah, it's Exodus chapter 19 when this event took place. I hope it's not you, brother, because you just did Old Testament survey. <laughs> What happened at the foot of the mountain? If you remember that event, we don't have time to read it, but it is a shocking event. God calls up Moses and says to him, I'm going to give you my words and you will speak my words to my people. That is what will take place. But first, I want to speak to them, but don't let them come up 
Don't let them come up. Don't let them come near. Don't let even an animal touch the mountain. Because if they do, they will what? Die. Then God opens his mouth and he starts to speak. What happens to the people? <laughs> Start screaming, put their hands over their, their ears. I wrote, um, they had the ears over their hands. That would be weird. They had their hands over their ears. I only noticed that this morning as I read through it. I'm like, yeah, it's not right. Um, because they couldn't receive the words of God. What does God give them at that moment? The law. Just read through it. Understand what is taking place at the foot of this mountain. They cannot come near. They cannot progress any further than the line which God has drawn because it's a moment of fear and trembling as God reveals His glory, His majesty, and His power. And they say, we cannot handle it. We cannot. Moses, you speak on our behalf. And their words is literally, literally is, do not let God speak to us. Here's what Matthew is doing. And Jesus, who he demonstrated in verse 1, is God, the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who was to come. Goes up on the side of the mountain, and he sits down, and the disciples come to him, and the crowds come to him. And what does he do? He speaks with them. See the contrast? Moses came with fear and trembling. That's what the law indicates, that there was judgment and fear. You could never come near to God. Jesus comes with grace, and he welcomes them, and he speaks with them. And the next, you can even see it in how Jesus words his language. In the Old Testament, you have, thou shalt not, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. What does Jesus start with? Blessed are those. See the contrast? Law and judgment, Exodus 19, grace and truth at the mount and at the feet of Jesus. How do I know that this relates to the great prophet? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 18. There's a significant line in this prophecy. Deuteronomy 18, and we will look at verse 15 specifically. <clears throat> and Yahweh, your God, will raise up for you a what? Prophet. Now, answer this question. You don't have to say it out loud, but what did the prophet do? He spoke the words of God, communicated the words of God. Remember that. I will raise up. Yahweh your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, this is Moses, from among you, for, from your brothers, it is him you shall listen, or it is to him you shall listen. Look at verse 18. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put what? My words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command. What did I say earlier? All that God commands is authoritative. On the mount, when Jesus speaks to his people, what is he speaking? The very words of God. 
is communicating what God requires of his people. In the Old Testament, God spoke through Moses to his people. The law had a medium. In the, uh, in the New Testament, there is no medium. God speaks to his people directly. See the contrast? See the difference? In the Old Testament, they fled. They didn't want to hear the words of God. In the New Testament, they are there with him, around him, and not fleeing. Again, look at the last line in verse 15. It is to him you shall listen. Now go to Matthew 17. It is to him you shall listen. Matthew 17, verse 5. Remember this moment? The Mount of Transfiguration. Take note what takes place in verse 4. And And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So clearly Moses and Elijah are there with him. He was still speaking. Then God cut him short because he was talking nonsense. Peter was still in the midst of his conversation, and Matthew picks it up. He says, he was still speaking, when behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I am completely satisfied with. Translation, I am well pleased. Listen to him. Where does that come from? Deuteronomy 18, 15. You shall listen to him. You will listen to him. Moses gave the first law. It's almost as if there's a handover. Elijah is essential in the announcement of the Messiah. So he is there to corroborate that this is the one. So you have the end of the first law and the announcement of the second law in Elijah. They are both there because they are significant people in the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ. Confirms Moses is done. New law, new Messiah, not new Messiah, Messiah, and new covenant is to come. So then, if Jesus fulfilled the law and is a greater prophet than Moses, then what should we expect? Third point, a new law. This is the third theological principle that we have to understand with regard to the law of Moses and the law of Christ. If Jesus is a greater prophet, then surely he must speak the words of a prophet and have the authority of a prophet. Hebrews chapter 7, and this is tremendously significant. A lot of people struggle with this understanding of how the law relates to the New Testament believer. The law in and of itself, the law of Moses, has no bearing upon the New Testament believer. And here's why. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11. Now if perfection had been attained through the Levitical priesthood, that's important. For under it, because the Levitical priesthood relates to the what? The Mosaic law. For under it... 
people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to raise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named in the order of Aaron? Take note of verse 12. For when there is a change in priesthood, when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in law as well. That is a treasure. When there's a change in priesthood, there's a change in law. If the Aaronic law, the the Levitical uh, priesthood, if they could produce perfection, you don't need a second high priest. You don't need one that would come and fulfill the law himself. You don't need that because then it would be attained through the Levitical system. But since it cannot be done because of the weakness of man's sin or his flesh, one comes who does not just fulfill the law and keep the law, but takes the law upon himself and dies as the law requires. The priests could never do that. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. Why does he say that? Not in the line of Aaron. New priest. Implication what? New law. If there's a change in priesthood, there's an establishment of a new law. And some people get shocked by this. Are you saying that the law doesn't, it is no, not existent? No, no. The law is still in our scriptures, right? It's given by God. It is authoritative, but it's fulfilled in Christ. And he establishes a new law. How do we know that? You don't have to turn to it. Ezekiel 33, Jeremiah 31, a new covenant and I will take my law and write it upon their hearts. What does that say? New covenant equals new law. Why? Because there's a new priest. A new priesthood implies a new law. Since Jesus then is the beginning of a new priesthood, he also institutes a new covenant law. So let me ask this question. If Jesus perfectly kept the law, fulfilled its requirement, then what does it say about the law? I think it's simple. It is finished. It is done. It is accomplished. The righteous demand of God required by the law is fulfilled, which implies that the weight and the condemnation of the law no longer rests upon the child of God. Romans chapter 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, praise God. Why? Because we are no no longer under law. This is revealed in verse 2. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What is that law? That is the Mosaic law. If you go to second, you don't have to go there, but second Corinthians chapter three explains that the law, the Mosaic law, is sin, reveals sin, and is the law of death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. For sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. 
in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. It's not that we fulfilled it. We cannot fulfill it. But we receive the fruits of Christ's perfect life. So then, how does this relate to James? In Christ, the requirement of the law is adequately fulfilled. And Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, you are no longer under law but under grace. But then again, in chapter 3, he says, we do not overthrow the law by faith. By no means, on the contrary, we uphold it. How? How do we uphold the law? By keeping the king's law. By keeping the royal law, also known as the law of Christ, or the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. This is the law of love. Look at Romans chapter 13. And this is absolutely crucial to understand the contrast between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Oh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves one for for the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. You love one another, you fulfilled the law. For the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, or any other commandment are summed up in this word. What is this word? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The principle that Jesus Christ requires of his people, the principle that must permeate, permeate their life is to live in love. Now go to James. With that in the background, look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the kingly law, the royal law, according to the scripture, which accords with scripture, which means it is not anything new. You have received it, but this is what it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. You are doing right. You're on the right track. You are fulfilling the entirety of the law. Why? Because this is what Christ requires of you. This is all that Christ requires of you. It's that simple. The requirement of the law is born by Christ and fulfilled by Christ. All that God requires in keeping the law is done by Jesus Christ. Therefore, you are free from the condemnation and the judgment of the law, but you are bound to keep the law of Christ. So, let me answer this question. Can the law be used for unbelieving Gentiles, after all, it was given to Jews. This is a perennial question, comes up quite a lot, and some of us have been dealing with it online in a chat group. The answer can be seen in two things. Let me ask this question. For whom did Jesus fulfill the righteous requirement of the law? Think about that. For whom did he receive? For whom was the cry, it is accomplished? If it's just the Jews, then how are we saved? How are we saved as Gentiles? 
So then the righteous requirement of the law is God's standard for everyone. No one is righteous. No one can keep the law. Isn't that what the law says? No one. That's not just Jew. It's Jew and Gentile. So then if he keeps the righteous requirement of the law and fulfills and accomplishes it and God is absolutely satisfied by that, then that requirement is fulfilled for all that would be saved in him. Jew and Gentile. So simply the answer in that question is what? Yes. You can use it for unbelieving Gentiles. Besides, when Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, for the law of the life, uh, for the law of life and uh, of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death, who is he speaking to? Jews and Gentiles. Because the Roman church had both Jews and Gentiles in. Secondly, what is the purpose of the law? This is simple. The law reveals our sin, condemns. That's the purpose of the law. It reveals our weakness and our falling short before God. And it, therefore, it points us to a greater need. We have a need because we cannot accomplish the requirement of the law. Whether it's whether you're lying or whether you're stealing. It, it reveals your shortfall. So the law points out our sin. Paul says in Galatians that the law is a tutor until Christ. Here's the thing. Does the law only point out that you are a sinner if you are a Jew? No. Whether Jew or Gentile, the condemnation and judgment and clarity of the law to point out that you are a sinner is for both Jew and Gentile. So whether you use it with a Jew or whether you use it with a Gentile, the outcome is the same. It tells us we fall short. For this reason, the law will do its job whether it's given to both Jew and Gentile. Now, let me transition back to verse 12. I have two minutes left. How does this relate to the book of James? James 2, verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Notice that it does not say by but under. That is so crucial. He's made a contrast between the royal law in verse 8, the kingly law, and now he returns to that royal law and calls it the law of liberty. Can the law of Moses liberate? No. Second Corinthians chapter 3 will tell you that. The law of Moses could never result in freedom. So, James's use of this little preposition under shows that Christians are governed by a new law. I mean, I think it's very simple. Don't complicate it. Royal law, kingly law, is the law that brings freedom. Why? Because if you're not under the law, what, you are, what are you under? The condemnation of the law. The law of Moses. Because you can never attain to perfection through that law. You will be judged by that law and seen as a violator. So in James' mind, there are two groups of people that he's addressing. Those who are truly keeping the royal law. 
They live in freedom because that law results in freedom. You are no longer under the Mosaic law, but you are under the law of Christ. You will not be judged by the Mosaic law, but you are freed by the law of uh, Christ. So what does he say? What does he mean when he says that you will be judged by the law of liberty? The law that brings freedom is the literal translation there. This relates to the judgment seat of Christ, where your rewards will be on display. This is not condemnation. Remember, he makes two statements about those who are under the law, who do not live under the royal law, under the kingly law, but are under the law of Moses. He says, you are counted as what? Transgressors. But he doesn't say that of those who are truly saved. So speak and act, so though live as if you will be judged under the law that brings freedom. You have been liberated. Now live in that freedom under Christ. That's his point. I'm going to have to end there. I'm not going to be able to finish. The law of Moses binds, but the law of Christ results in freedom. Love is the only sign of faith should not say only. Love is a sign of faith in God and evidences the presence of the Spirit. Why? Galatians chapter 5. What is one of the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Somebody asked me, well, how would you define the law of Christ? There's quite a variety of different ways in which it is defined and um, and I don't have any problem with that, but I would, I would define it as, as follows. The law of Christ is that work of God's grace whereby, wherein, through which he ministers grace to his people, through his people, for the ongoing upbuilding of his people, through the ministry of love amongst his people. Make sense? The law of Christ operates amongst God's people. Because it is the law of love. One last point. Galatians. How does this look? What does the love of Christ look like in a church community? James will deal with it, but I don't want to give, you, give that away because then I don't have to preach it. But Galatians chapter 5. Paul speaks about the freedom that comes in Jesus Christ. Verse 1, for freedom... Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery, which is the law. Look at verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through what? Love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. We're getting back to that command. I don't know if you got what he said in the beginning of verse 14 uh, and 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for indulging in the pleasures of the flesh, but in contrast to be self-centered, self-occupied, in, in contrast to that, through love serve one another. Here's what you can do. Look at the one another's in the New Testament. It is the expression of the law of love, I should say, the law of Christ amongst God's people. To obey the law of Christ is to be 
is to overwhelm the citizens of the kingdom with the law of love. It is the wall of protection that God provides His people. It is the comfort and encouragement that God bestows on His people. It is the reason why the one another's exist. This is why we can bear with one another because bearing one with one another is an expression of the law of Christ. Encouraging one another is an expression of the law of Christ. Loving one another is an expression of the law of, of Christ. Encouraging, serving, all of these one another's is a demonstration of your love for Christ and therefore a fulfillment of the command of God. In the realm of grace and love, in the realm of grace, love is supreme. In contrast to that, self-reliance, isolation from the community of God's people is pride and shuts the door of the ministry of love from us. That is not love for Christ, and that is not obedience to the call of God. That stands antithetical to the command that God has given to his people, to love your neighbor as yourself. The freedom and joy of community and communion is experienced when the child of God is held accountable by the pillars or the barriers of the one another's. That is how God demonstrates his love for you in giving you the one another's. This is how we demonstrate the law of Christ amongst God's people. When we reject both the interrelation expression of love and the grace of God in the provision of the saints, there is a willful rejection of the law of Christ. And the only logical conclusion is that you have put yourself under the weight of the law, condemned and a violator, which means you may not be a part of the community of faith. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful to you for your great kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We know we don't deserve it. We know that there is so much, Lord, that this world can weigh us down with. But there is so much freedom and hope and peace in Christ. Why would we ever want to give that up for selfish desires and self-centered love? Help us to walk in obedience to the law of Christ. Help us to live faithful to you. Help us to apply the one another's as we come to understand how that relates to the law of Christ, the, law, the royal law. Forgive us where we fail. Perhaps it's because we did not fully understand the importance of the one another's. So we ask that you forgive us for that. But now that we know, Lord, we pray that we would be accountable to one another, that we would be faithful to you, and obey your word, and do as you command. Thank you for your grace, and thank you for the truth. We pray that you would convict. Strengthen us by your spirit as we give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.